This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he is crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth before the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, and this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's go, Lord, in prayer before we get into our study this morning. Our Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to look in your word. We know it's a privilege that we all have it here before us in our own language, readily accessible. And Lord, with that access, we often take it for granted, diminish its authority and its importance. And so we want to first commit ourselves to you this morning, that you might work through your word that we might recognize its preciousness, the rarity of this kind of time. That we might lay hold of it with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Lord, we do commit this time. We pray your Spirit might guard it from error, opinions, and philosophies of men. There might be the wisdom of this from above. That is pure and peaceable. Lord, that it might produce a harvest of righteousness in our lives. And again, this is well beyond the capability of men to produce. And so our complete dependence this morning is upon you. Both in the declaration of your word and in the reception of it. We pray that we might be instruments fit for your use, that you might truly search us and know our hearts and purify us if there be any wicked way. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come into a text of Scripture that we're still in the summary mode. Um, He hasn't really gotten to his farewell greetings. They're coming up in a few weeks. We get to 11, 12, 13 with some fascinating information. It's going to take several weeks to get through because they're rapid fire statements that need some address on our parts. We come though to another summary really of all of First and Second Corinthians as Paul brings to us to understand a conclusion of what he really wants. What is it that he desires and longs for on behalf of these to whom he has ministered? He has brought the gospel to them. He has visited them multiple times. has written to them multiple letters. They are obviously a concern of his heart. He is not willing to surrender them to the evil one, to false agents who claim to be of Christ and are not. 
He does not want to surrender them to sin. And so he is going to take every measure necessary to secure for them the truth. To substantiate the message that they received at first when he came with the gospel into Corinth. That they were trained in, instructed in, but that they largely never matured in. And this has been the issue with the Corinthian church. They had the same gospel given to them by the same teacher with the same power, the same evidences. But they didn't mature. And the result of that immaturity was that sin abounded amongst them, almost unreigned by the church. In fact, we saw in 1 Corinthians that very well was the case, that they were glorying in something they should have been ashamed of. And so, this concluding few verses here of his testimony is going to be pointed to really boiling down all that he's written into really two statements. Two simple, direct statements that is a culmination and has been explored throughout all of these chapters and verses that we have done that for these last several years that we have been studying through First and Second Corinthians, that we have uh, boiled it down to two statements, two declarations, two prayers of Paul. And these, uh, on the forefront, are, could be made without the intervening passages, without the intervening words he's going to share between these two prayers, But we're going to talk about why those are necessary. It would be really easy for me to simply declare to you what he declared to them. That want to keep you from doing evil. They want the church to be complete, fulfilled. The word he uses with Timothy was perfect. You have all that God wants for you. That you not be immature, but mature. That you not be uh, blown about by every guy that walks into town with something to sell, but that you be established, strengthened, built, that is edified. You be sturdy. All of this is wrapped up in the idea of complete. But there are some intervening words here that we have to address why they're there. And we know why they're there. um, But it's sometimes difficult for us to maybe appreciate why they're there. And that's really what I want to focus in on this morning. The two statements and also what comes between them. In verse 7 he says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Pretty concise statement. That here in the pastor's heart, his number one prayer to God, his number one request, his number one desire for these people is that they do no evil. You see, our tendency is to pray a little differently. Our tendency is to pray, Lord, don't let any evil happen to me. Right? Isn't that more our tendency? Is don't let any evil happen to me. You know, don't let people um, be mean to me. Don't let robbers come and steal from me. Don't let um, any bad things happen to me. Lord, don't let any evil happen to me. Generally, because we're willing to excuse the evil that we do ourselves. And Paul here doesn't have that as his primary prayer. The fact is, is that if they were really living out their faith, As fully as they should have been, evil would have been happening to them. He anticipates that. That the world's going to hate you like they hated your Lord and Savior. And so he comes right away and he says, My prayer uh, is not that you be hedged about away from evil happening to you, because for that to happen would mean you'd have to be out of this world, but you are here and you have a purpose to fulfill. To fulfill that purpose, this is my prayer, is that you, as a testimony in your city, do no evil. That you are not 
in that frame of mind that excuses yourself from doing that which you know is an affront to God. We can talk about our sample prayer from God from that Jesus gave to his disciples. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Richness of truth there. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those that are debted to us. And then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is that we look to God as a place of, uh, as a a divine resource, let's put it like that. As a divine resource for doing no evil. We're going to be confronted with choices, and those choices are going are not rare, and they're not new to you. They are not unique. Um, they have confronted all men in all time. They confronted our Savior in His days on earth. They confront uh, people of every generation and every age to conform to this world, rather than be transformed. And Christ explains that in our prayer time, that we. Look to God for His role, and He does perform that role to keep us from doing evil. But His role, again, just like salvation, is dependent upon our willingness to pray that kind of prayer substantially. That is, with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, with our intentions behind it. Not as, well, I prayed for you to keep me from doing evil, and I did evil, so it must be your fault. God will always do His part in delivering us from evil. When we pray that kind of prayer on a continuous basis, on a daily basis, when we get up and say, Lord, um, keep us from doing evil, Lord, and we go through our day and we drive into work and we know what we're going to confront at work. We know the people we have to work with. We know their idiosyncrasies that bug us. We know which ones hate God and hate God's people. We know what we're going to encounter to... Pray this prayer. Lord, keep me from doing evil. Lord, guard my heart from thinking that, from conceiving that, let alone performing it. And so Paul, on behalf of his church, says, I pray to God that he might keep you from doing evil. That you would do no evil. You would conform yourself and bring yourself into alignment with His purposes. And we know what God desires. He wants us to be holy as He is holy. And so He sets the standard, and that standard isn't God's holiness in heaven. That sounds a little bit bad, but it's not. The standard isn't God's holiness in heaven. Be holy like I am holy. In that place where He's holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Rather, the standard bearer is Jesus Christ to be holy as he was holy and is holy. That he walked where we walk. He encountered what we encounter, and he serves us a wonderful example of how to avoid evil, how to not do any evil, even as people are doing evil to us. That while he is on the cross being crucified, his prayer to God was not, Lord, can you just take these people out? Look at what the evil they've done to me. No, his prayer was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the, the significance of what they're doing. And it's eternal ramifications. And so, when it comes to the judgment day, please don't judge them based upon this act. Even though they requested that act to be put on their heads and on their children's head and on their children's children's head. Let his blood be on us. And Christ says, oh no, you couldn't bear that weight. And so the prayer was not to be delivered from evil, but from doing evil. That God would intervene in our heart and our mind as we commit ourselves and we seek to walk in righteousness. The Holy Spirit will be faithful to bring to our mind His Word, both in our testimony and sharing Christ with others, but also in our own witnessing to our own spirit. 
that we might walk in righteousness. We have far too much preaching today that is permissive for the believer. That is, that we give you all the means to excuse yourself from these kinds of demands. To do no evil. What a lot of our preaching concludes is that um, just try your best not to do every evil. Which implies that just don't be as bad as them out there. We know you're going to sin. Well, we know that, but I'm not going to excuse it. God calls us to this. And Paul's purpose in ministry, both in his visits and sharing the gospel at the first visit, in his subsequent visits, in all of his letters, was, I want to guard you from doing sin. Don't commit it. As a church body, as individuals within that body, do not commit evil. Do no evil. His second statement, his second prayer, we find at the end of verse 9. It says, in this also we pray. And by uh, the transition from I pray to we pray, there's some indication that the first one may have been we pray as well. Um, but Paul and his band, and we have met some of them. We've met Titus, and we've met others that have traveled with Paul into Corinth. We know that Aquila and Priscilla were there. We know um, that Apollos was there. We know there was a good number of people who have been in there who were faithful servants of God. And Paul says, here's what we also pray, that you may be made complete. He's going to reiterate this and strengthen this in verse 11 when he says, become complete, which makes it in the passive sense um, that we're accepting the completion that God is doing. But his prayer to God, he's praying that they may be made complete, that, we, that they are the recipients of God's working. That, and this is really the idea of maturity. And so as we walk with God and we do no evil, one, which is necessary, I believe, I believe this is very necessary to your Christian walk. That if you resist God in areas of righteousness you are going to come up short in the areas of maturity of what he wants to complete in you. The Holy Spirit will not bring to completion in you if you resist him in the areas of obedience. Just as God won't save you if you don't humble yourself and surrender your will to his will to repent and to bring him in as Lord and Savior of your life. And so the offer is there, the provision is there, But to access that provision, to make it your own, requires that faith to humbly surrender oneself to God. And so here, to become complete um, doesn't make yourself complete. doesn't say that. You are to be made complete. This is a work of God, and your part in that work is, I would contend, begins with doing no evil. That we are already, now we've received Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're going to respond to the Holy Spirit, which will never lead you into sin. So we're going to respond to Him, and we're going to be led in righteousness. We're going to walk in righteousness. Having walked in righteousness now, here is what God will respond to by faith as we trust in Him. And that's really what a faith living is. It cannot be unholy. Faith living demands righteous living. And so in response to that, God now does this completion, this maturation, this perfecting of us. And does that through many different ways, some of which we don't like. We found in Paul's life that sometimes he does this through opposition and through being beat up and shipwrecked and wandering uh, out in uh, remote places that nobody knows who you are and nobody seems to care. And yet, in those instances where Paul walked in righteousness in the midst of all that, God brought him to maturity and completion, perfection. Not the perfection of, that we use today that they never you know, make a mistake, but this, this, uh, a, a perfect man that is a complete man. That I have all that God intends for me. They are being implemented in my life. And they are being born there. That there is a maturity. That there is meatiness to my faith. That it's not a lip service thing. It is not something I do once a week. It is every day, constant, 
definition of who I am. When Christianity becomes that to us, that I am not um, defining myself by any other terms, by the things the world defines themselves, by what language you speak, what color your eyes, hair, or skin are, um, by the culture you were raised in, born into, as if you had a choice about that, um, or by what political party or political things you hold. Um, these are all ways men define themselves before a believer who is complete in Christ. The definition of who we are is in Christ. It's how we define ourselves. Who are you? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Everything else is pretty insignificant compared to that. When we ask men who they are, what do we usually say? What do you do for a living? Right? And maybe some questions about their uh, family relationships. Uh, whether they are husband, father, brother, son. Well, it had to be a son of somebody. Um, and so we, we ask them, but mostly we talk about what they do. But for the believer, it's not what we do, it's who we are. And now, because of who I am, here's what I'm doing. And so we have this cycle of maturity where we begin responding to understanding that Christ saved us from sin. He washed it away. Why would I want to go back like a dog to its vomit and lick it up again? That's a disgusting thing, isn't it? Sorry. Well, no, I'm not sorry at all, because I want you to think about sin as disgusting. Don't go back and lick up your own vomit. God purged it from you. Get it out of there. Don't go back to it. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't taste good. It won't do you good. Leave it alone. Press on. And so we find God does that, and now we can respond by faith, walking in Christ's righteousness that he imputed to us. The Holy Spirit responds to that by leading us into maturity. We respond to that by serving him faithfully, and it just keeps building and building and building, row upon row, course upon course. And as, as one course is laid down in our life, the Spirit has already uh, got the provision for the next course to be laid down. And pretty soon, we have a magnificent structure, solidly built on a rock foundation called Jesus Christ's righteousness, His sacrifice, His work. We are made complete, course upon course. And this is that word in the Bible, it's, it, the, the term we'll find in the King James, New King James is edification. Which just means to build up. To build up. Course upon course. And this is the work of God that as we respond uh, to one work in faith, uh, by obedience and by uh, trust, that he's ready to lay another course on us. And just build that wall, that structure up, that's solid and, and, and sure. And anyone who's done any amount of construction recognizes how necessary it is to complete a building. Uh, we've been building a little gazebo in my backyard. Well, it's not a little. It, it's a pretty good-sized gazebo. Um, and we put up the posts, and we just set them on the thing. We screwed them in, and they're pretty wobbly. They're not attached to anything, really. We had to use little things to keep them straight, um, supports to keep them straight. And then we put in the cross members, and it got a little stronger. Now it's a little stronger. The cross members aren't really quite so needed. Um, but it still wasn't satisfied that it was strong enough to put a roof on it. So we put in support structures on each post, connecting, making a triangle, because triangles are really strong. And so we put a triangle, really, on each side of every post to its beam. And it got stronger. And then we started putting on the rafters. And once they were connected in, it got even stronger. And we went around and put all the metal covering, every joint, really, and metal strapping. And it got stronger. Now we've got the roofing on, and it's really strong. Every work of God in us to bring us to completion just strengthens us. Now, if I went and asked the post, do you want me to drive these nails into you? Do you want me to fasten this stuff to you? Um, I'm pretty sure the post says, that sounds painful. That sounds kind of painful. And now I'm going to be permanently attached to those things. Yeah, we're going to drill 
we're going to screw screws into you. We're going to drill holes into you. We're going to cut notches into you. And we're going to drive nails into you. But in the end, you're going to be strong and useful. This is edification, to build up. And God says, if you'll let me, I'll build you up. And this is Paul's prayer. Um, I'm not trying to destroy you. I'm not trying to, to tear you down. My purpose in all of this admonition, and these, these were admonishing words, weren't they? It's been years of these admonishing words, and they're, they've been tough sometimes to swallow. Um, they've been sarcastic at times. They've been, they've been inflammatory at times. He's called names. He's, he's, he's named sins and, and been very specific, and, and it's hurt. Uh, we look at this and say, oh, man, how are we going to conform to this? But yet we must, and we have tried, and we will continue to try. But Paul's purpose in all of this was not to destroy, but to strengthen. And yes, in the course of that, uh, holes have been drilled, and notches have been made, and screws have been screwed, and, and nails have been hammered in. And that's a painful process. But the goal, the objective, Paul says, I pray you may be made complete. Let the master craftsman, Jesus Christ, make us complete. And he uses tools. And those tools are men like Paul and God's Word and preachers and teachers and, and uh, parents and coaches and, and people like that who know God's Word and apply it. Friends, if you have good friends, if you don't, get better ones. Um, they're going to sharpen you. They're going to press you. They're going to invite you to a more complete walk with Christ. And so Paul's concern, his desire, was to do these two things. Because he recognized their interdependence. That as we respond to the Holy Spirit, that first evidence is that we hate sin. And we make every effort to get it out of our life. Our second objective is to allow God, once we are doing this, that we allow God to make us more complete, to strengthen us, to build us up. And then we are more obedient. And then he builds more. And then we are more obedient. And he builds more. And we are strengthened and built up till we are full. We are perfect. We're complete. And this is Paul's desire for them. None of what he has written has been uh, self-serving. None of what he has written has intended to just annoy people or to abuse them. But rather that these two things would be accomplished in their life. That they would do no evil that they would be made complete. Now we want to spend a little time about these intervening words. And I've uh, implied some things already with regard to them. Why? Why does Paul, why does the preacher pray these two things? Now you might think that's a silly thing for a preacher to be worried about. Why are you doing this? What are your motives? We have come to understand Paul's opposition by looking at Paul's defense, what they were doing against him. And I've, um, I've always struggled with this last part of 2 Corinthians because of the nature of the language. and It seems harsh. It seems sometimes even contradictory almost. Um, the, once the, he's going to do what he doesn't want to do and things along that line. Um, and i got to tell you, after years of the ministry and even the last few weeks in the ministry, uh, I begin to understand Paul's heart. He has encountered so much opposition for so long. It has done so much damage to Corinth already that he can't give a single statement without supporting his motives. He can't make a single declaration like, I pray to God that you do no evil. You would pretty much say, well, yeah, that's what pastors should do. They should do that. Um, you might agree with that. I might agree with that. But Paul's concern was that any statement he made is going to be twisted and warped by men to say, well, that's just so that he can say this. And so Paul anticipates the opposition because he has come to know them well. 
You might say, well, he's a little paranoid, and uh, if that's the case, um, so is just about any pastor who's been a pastor for a number of years and preached the truth. He gives a very simple statement. I pray to God that you do no evil. But then he has to say this statement. Not that we should appear approved. Why would he have to say this? Because he's anticipating the opposition. The opposition is going to say, oh, you're just doing that so you look good. And this is Satan's tactic. And Paul knows it, God knows it, and so we're giving these verses very preciously. Satan's tactic is to, if he can't silence the messenger by making them compromise their message, which Paul won't do, he begins in the hearts of the recipients of that message to question their motives. Oh, you only want that so that you look good. You're only serving yourself. And of course, selfish people tend to think that everyone else is just as selfish as they are. Learned a lot about that this week, too. And so they want to, they, we transfer our suspicions that we really know about ourselves onto others. And Paul anticipates this and says, listen, we're not praying that you don't do any evil just so that we can appear approved. So on the outside, look, and appearance is about the facade, how it looks. And frankly, uh, if a pastor only wants his people to look like they're good and not be good, um, that's a pretty empty pastor right there. That's a shell of a man that is not a man of God. And Paul says, I'm not worried about our appearance or your appearance. Or the, it's, that's not fundamentally why I do this. It's not just because it makes me look bad when, when, when you people are out sinning and I'm, and I'm sitting here what, saying, wait a minute, I'm the one that gave them the gospel. I, I'm the one that trained them. I've visited, I've written letters. And it just makes me look bad if you go out there and sin. That's not Paul's motive. But he anticipates that someone's going to say that's his motive. And so he wants to qualify this. this, Listen, you're suspicious of my praying? Then let me explain why I pray. It's not so that I look approved. It's not so that our work gets the appearance of God's glory. No, what I want is for you to do what is honorable, even if it makes us look bad. even if we may appear or seem to be disqualified. It is of greater importance that you do no evil, that you do what is honorable, and this is just two sides, this is the negation and the positive, okay? The positive and the negative are the same statement. Do no evil, do what is honorable. Okay, you understand it's the same thing. One in the negative, no evil, one of the positive, what is honorable. So why do I want you to do this? It's not so that I look good. Frankly, I don't care if I look good. And even if I look, seem, I look or I appear disqualified. Even if people want to put me down or, or di- disassociate my role to your righteousness, that's fine because I'm not about exalting myself. If people want to call me disqualified, but yet it produces what's honorable in you, I'll applaud that. That equation works for me. Paul says, any equation that at the end of it, you're righteous, I'm for it. If I have to be the bad guy, if I have to be the guy that takes the brunt of it, but it produces righteousness in you, that there's honor in your life instead of this shame then I'm okay with that. I'll take it. It's not maybe fair, but I'm not looking for fairness in this side of heaven. I'm looking for righteousness among people who say, God has made me righteous. And so he anticipates the opposition, questioning his motives. Why would he pray that? Why are you praying that? You, know, you just want to make yourself look good because you want to sit there and beat your own drum that your church and your people don't do those things. No. 
It's not our motive. Let's take an example out of Corinthians. We did about women's head coverings. Do we go around and tell people because we're more biblical than everyone else and so we're going to do what Corinthians says? No. What we're challenging, just like Pastor Reddy who came and challenged me, is we want to challenge others to say, listen, is God's Word real or not? Are we going to do what is honorable, righteous, biblical, or not? And it's not that somehow we have this feather in our cap that you don't na 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 That's not the motivation. That's not the interest. That's not the desire. But it could easily become that. So Paul wants to recognize there is opposition. This is what they're going to say. But frankly, that's not our motive. It's not the pastor's motive. A godly pastor wants his people to be righteous for righteous sake, for their sake, for the glory of God. He wants them to do honorably. He wants them to do no evil, not just to make his life easier. It may make his life easier. I'll be honest but it's not the motivating force of doing it. Rather, his motive is described really in verse 8. He said what it's not. His motive is not to appear approved. His motive is not to uh, let everyone know how biblically qualified he is. No, that's not his motive. His motive is in verse 8. I don't want you to be honorable and to be complete just for my benefit or my interests. My motives for this kind of praying is because I cannot oppose the truth. We're going to do nothing against the truth before the truth. Whether you want to have this be little t truth or capital T truth referring to Jesus Christ, I'm okay with either one, and I prefer them both. You can't disassociate little t truth from capital T truth. Can we? I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. And Paul says, if I did anything other than desire honor in your life, I would be opposing the truth. And it's this commitment to truth that drives the man of God to preach, even if he encounters all kinds of opposition, all kinds of put-downs, all kinds of of false accusations. Um, He has to preach the truth. He has to. Paul uses the, the statement here, he says, we can do nothing against the truth. He can't do it. The mature person of God can't bring himself to openly oppose Jesus Christ and the truth of God's Word. He just can't do it. His conscience is too secure in Christ to enable him to do that. There have been times in my ministry where I've been told, just put it under the table. Just put it away. Don't even talk about it. You don't need to teach that. (laughs) But it's in the Bible. But you won't give many followers if you teach that. But it's in the Bible. Why do you have to be such a troublemaker? Because it's in the Bible. Why can't you just take this doctrinal statement and sign it? Because it's not the Bible. The man of God who is truly in this process of seeking to do only what is honorable and seeking to become complete in Christ can never do what is against the truth. His conscience won't allow him to. The purpose of his life won't allow him to. He will likely sin here and there as his flesh catches him but he cannot openly and 
and purposefully seek to do something against the truth. And Paul says to call you to anything but righteousness would be against the whole principles of who we are. It's against our definition. I can't be brought to that. What brings gladness to the man of God in the pulpit, in the ministry, the pastorate, in the parent over a child, over the uh, people of God with regard to each other? What brings gladness? Verse 9. Not when we get puffed up. We learned that, right? A lot earlier in the Corinthians. No. We're glad if we're weak when it makes you strong. If in our weakness you get strength, then praise God. Something's accomplished. You see, a man that's already humbled himself before God and recognized his complete and utter weakness, to be weak in front of men is a small thing. If it accomplishes something wonderful, that is, the completion of their faith, that they are being built. And you get to be a tool the master builder uses in that process. And let us recognize that that's our role. We are um, the tool. We are not the master builder. I'm not the master builder. We're the hammer, the saw. That's it dependent entirely upon the energizing and the skill and wisdom of the builder to pick up and use. Without it, the saw, instead of being a positive thing, can be a destructive thing. The hammer, instead of being a benefit, could be a detriment. I don't have any of my tools that get up and do the work by themselves. I've been trying to design those, but so far, they're beyond, that's beyond me. They still need a skillful directive. So Paul recognizes his role. I'm just an instrument. I'm just a tool for God to use. And I'm okay with that. And if in the midst of God using me, and even using me up, I'll even use that term, using me up, and at the end result is, is that you are strong. You are complete. You are built. You are firm and can withstand any storm. Then I'm okay with that. And this is in direct opposition to what Paul is encountering there among the Corinthian false teachers who've come in and brought disruption, have brought division, have brought sin. He says, the one's motives you should be questioning are theirs because I don't have any prideful motives here. I have no interest of serving myself in this twofold prayer that is the force of Paul's post-gospel ministry. Once he introduces the gospel in your life, here's the two things you're going to hear from him. Do no evil. Do what's honorable. Do what's right. And be strengthened. Grow up. Mature in Christ. Be built strong. Endure. Last. Stand the storm. Because a master builder has constructed you with a variety of tools and the process has been maybe a little painful, but the end result is so worth it. And Paul's ministry as a pastor of these people has been brought into question on so many levels. And he has defended himself, but he's tried to do it honorably. And, and, and he comes down to the concluding statement of what he, what he ultimately wants for them. And even in very, two very simple statements that should have just been able to be declared and people would say, oh, praise God, i got a pastor here that wants me to do no evil and wants me to be complete in Christ. He has to still defend his motives for these two fundamental principles of ministry. He still has to defend himself. He still has to deal with it. 
And if you think that that's changed, it hasn't. It still goes on today. That the men of God who have sought to preach the truth have been under assault, not from outside the church, but from within the church. And you look at the great preachers, the quote-unquote great preachers, of because many of them wouldn't have liked to have been called that. When you read their, their writings and their letters, and they hated being called great anything. Charles Spurgeon preached thousands, and we all think about his heydays of his ministry when um, you know every sermon on Monday morning was published in the New York Times or London New York Times, London Times, um, and we think of him in his heyday. And most people don't realize that the last third of his ministry life was in utter turmoil as he was attacked and assaulted from every side from within the church and from other clergy, from other faiths, he was just mercilessly attacked. But he stayed the course. This is Satan's tactic. And I would contend that if you're participating in this kind of activity, it's time that you do what's honorable. Stop questioning the motives of the man who simply wants you to do no evil and to allow God to make you complete, to build you up and strengthen you. For Paul ministers here to us not out of malice, not out of selfishness, but out of his love for us. But that love for you and for me does not transcend his commitment to the truth. If you won't Submit to the truth. Then he can't minister to you. Because he can do nothing against the truth. I have compared the ministry to some people as walking on eggshells all the time. That if you say or do just the wrong thing, you'll offend somebody, they'll get mad at you, um, you're the worst, and I've been called the worst pastor. I've been called Jim Jones. I've been called all kinds of ridiculous things. Well, it's not. Um, and the assault begins. All you have to do is just shuffle your feet one direction, step one way off this very narrow road of everybody's pet peeves. And that's really all they are. Don't offend me, or I'm out of here. Don't offend me or I'm going to attack you. And that's the norm. I'm convinced. In other passages of Scripture, the church has been instructed that there's no benefit in that for you. The greatest benefit to the church with regard to her leadership is to submit to them because they watch for your souls. Paul here is such a man. Now I've come to identify with him. I've come to understand these passages like I've never really understood them before. That here in the most fundamental, basic principle of what it means to be in the ministry, Paul is still on the defense and has to be because even doing the basic work of the ministry brings you under attack. And so Paul still defends himself. But in the midst of this, we have a wonderful declaration that needs to be the watchword for us as a church. That we can do nothing against the truth. This is the declaration of mature Enduring, built Christianity. We will only do what is for the truth, not against it. If it means that we count called weak, if we people say we're disqualified, so be it. So be it. Providing the church 
at the end of the day, is doing what's honorable, no evil, and is being built to completion and the strength that there is there. Powerful statement. A great summary of the whole book laid out here in three verses. It is First and Second Corinthians in a nutshell. Now I pray to God you do no evil. Not that we appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable. Though we may seem disqualified. But we can do nothing against the truth before the truth. We are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for a powerful and simple declaration by your servant. Pray that it might be shared by each servant of yours here. That we have no other motive than to be and do for the truth. As a result of that motive, that we seek to lead one another into doing what's honorable. That we seek to be instruments for your building in one another. That we might become complete and have all the strength of that work in our lives. Lord God, we do thank you for your spirit and the promises that you have. And Lord, whatever the cost to any one's reputation here, Lord, if you could make us more complete, we'll gladly bear it, knowing that you are faithful, that you love us, and that you will work all things together for our good. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.